0: I'll read now Baptist Catechism questions 66 and 67. As I said before, we will not be working through these questions in detail. I think think in the last two sermons I've probably said enough about uh, the fourth commandment, the permanence of the Sabbath day, what it means to keep the Sabbath holy. Uh, This sermon will be devoted to really the topic of the dangers of legalism and antinomianism, but let me read questions 66 and 67. They are good and very important. What is forbidden in the fourth commandment? So we've considered what it requires. Here's another way of addressing uh, the commandment. What does it forbid? The fourth commandment forbids the omission or careless performance of the duties required and the profaning of the day by idleness or doing that which is itself sinful or by unnecessary thoughts, words, or works about worldly employments or recreations. And then question 67 asks, What are the reasons annexed or added to the fourth commandment? Uh, The reasons added to the fourth commandment are, God's allowing us six days of the week for our own lawful employments, His challenging a special propriety in the seventh, His own example and His blessing of the Sabbath day. Of course, this is a reference to the reason given for the Sabbath day in the giving of the fourth commandment. Uh, The pattern of one in seven was established at the time of creation. The Lord Himself modeled this pattern through His own actions by creating in six days and resting on the seventh. And you have heard my argument that the pattern of six in one, six and one, remains and will until the end of the earth, though the day has changed. We are going to read Acts 20. Verses 7 through 12. Here is one of the many New Testament passages that makes it clear that the early church honored uh, the first day of the week, Sunday, as the Lord's Day Sabbath. On the first day of the week, the text says, when we were gathered together to break bread, this is a reference to the observance of the Lord's Supper. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. "...intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight." Pastors do love this um, passage, by the way. As See, at least I'm not as bad as Paul. He preached till midnight. "...there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychius, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome with sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead." But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This text is set forth as evidence that the early church honored the first day, Sunday, as a holy day. It was on that day that they broke bread. I do not think that this text requires preachers to preach until midnight and then still longer until daybreak. Uh, But the youth will remember. We brought this passage up in our youth study on Wednesday night, didn't we, about this young man who fell out of the window and was raised to life after having died miraculously. As we consider the moral law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments, there are two errors that we have to be very careful to avoid. First is the error of legalism. Second, the air of antinomianism. Both of these errors are very serious and they must be avoided, brothers and sisters. What is legalism? It takes different forms, in fact. One, it is the false belief that sinful men and women can be made right with God through obedience to the law of God. Scriptures are very clear that this is impossible for the simple reason that we are all lawbreakers. Apart from Christ, we stand guilty before God. No amount of law-keeping will fix that problem, the problem of our guilt. We need a Redeemer. His name is Jesus Christ. He kept God's law in our place. He died in our place too, so that we might be forgiven and reconciled to the Father. So here's the first type of legalism. It is the belief that we can be made right with God through law-keeping. I think we could say it is the most extreme form of legalism, we must avoid it. There is a second form of legalism that we must be careful to avoid, and it is the elevation of human traditions and opinions to the place of law, along with the imposition of those traditions and opinions on others. This is also a form of legalism that is to be avoided. It is probably a bit more common. Let me give you an example. If I choose to fast every Thursday, I don't. But if I did, if I chose to fast every Thursday, and if I made that a law for myself, not to earn God's favor, but from the heart and out of gratitude for all that God has done for me in Christ Jesus, that is not legalism, is it? If I decide that this will be my custom, if if I decide this will be a kind of law for me, it is not legalism. But if I begin to but if I get to excuse me, but if I begin to preach and to bind the consciences of others saying "You must fast every Thursday or you must not eat meat during this or that time of the year, or you must observe these holidays, etc, that is legalism. Why Because I have taken things that are mere traditions of men and I have begun to try to impose them. Upon the people of God. I suppose all believers can do that towards one another, and it would be wrong. It is especially damaging when a pastor, a minister of the Word of God, tries to do it, to take human traditions and then to impose them upon the church. That is a second form of legalism that must be avoided. A third form of legalism is really a subcategory of the second. And it is the false teaching that believers under the New Covenant are obliged to obey the civil and ceremonial laws that were given to Old Covenant Israel. Granted, these laws are biblical in the sense that they are found in the Bible, but they are not binding on us because we do not live under the Old Covenant of which they were a part. We live under the New Covenant, which is a different covenant. Yes, The Hebrews living under the Old Covenant were obligated to circumcise their male children. They were obligated to offer sacrifices at the temple. They were obligated to honor many holy holy days and Sabbaths, etc. And they were not legalists in striving to keep these laws, provided that they were not trying to earn favor with God through the keeping of them, instead of through faith in the promised Redeemer. No, instead they were right to obey these laws, for they were Not the product of man, but they were from God. It was right for them to obey all of these laws which God gave to them. But is anyone obligated to keep them today? The answer is no. So if anyone comes to you today and says, you are obligated to keep these civil and ceremonial laws that were given to Israel under the old Mosaic Covenant, laws like the law of circumcision or laws pertaining to the abstaining from certain kinds of foods or the observation of Old Covenant festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths. You may see Colossians 2.16 about that. That person is a legalist. Are these laws biblical? Well, only in this sense. They are found in the Bible. Yes, that is true. But they are not for us. And they are not to be imposed upon the New Covenant people of God. The early church had to wrestle with this, didn't they? Do we have to Tell the Gentiles they must be circumcised. The answer was no, because circumcision was a sign of the sign of the old covenant, not the new. So again, though it is true that all of these laws were from God, it is also true that they are not for us, for we live under the new covenant and not the old. We have Christ as our high priest and not Aaron, and the scriptures say, When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. That is Hebrews 7.12. New covenant, change in the priesthood, change in the law as well. Hebrews 7.12 makes this clear. So beware of legalism in all of its forms, brothers and sisters. What then is antinomianism? Well, it is the false teaching that says there is no law for the Christian. The prefix anti means against and Namas means law, so then antinomians teach in one way or another that there is no law for the Christian. As with legalism, antinomianism comes in different flavors. Some may teach that there is no objective law for the Christian period. I suspect that most would say that there is a law, but that it is the law of the Spirit or the law of Christ and that this law is somehow different in substance from the law which was written on stone at Sinai. Both views are erroneous and they leave the Christian without an objective moral standard. If I were to guess, I would say antinomianism is a much bigger problem in the church today, at least in our region, than legalism is. It must be avoided. What then is our view concerning the law of God and its usefulness to the believer under the New Covenant? Can you see why I'm addressing this question right now? We're right in the middle of a consideration of the Ten Commandments, and so questions about legalism and antinomianism are natural, and we are especially considering the Fourth Commandment, and as we will see in just a moment, those who believe that the Sabbath is permanent today will often be charged with the charge of legalism, and so we must Address this question. What is our view concerning the law of God and its usefulness to the believer under the new covenant? Chapter 19 of our confession actually states our position very beautifully. And I'd like to read this chapter to you quickly. Uh, It will only take a moment. I'll move very quickly through it. I will not offer very many comments, but I just want you to hear what our confession of faith says. I think it is so very beautiful, so very true to the Holy Scripture, so very helpful to us, maybe even especially in our modern age where antinomianism kind of has had a really devastating impact upon the church, I think. Chapter 19 is entitled, Of the Law of God. Listen carefully. I'll read quickly. Paragraph 1. God gave to Adam... A law of universal obedience written in his heart, and a particular precept of not eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound himself and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. This is talking about Adam before the fall and in the garden. The moral law of God, the law of God was written on his heart, and positive laws were added too, like the law to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. So, there is where we begin. Paragraph 2, the same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall, and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables, the first four containing our duties towards God and the other six, our duty to man. So, this moral law that was written on Adam's heart in the garden, was it obliterated entirely by man's fall into sin? No, it continued to be in the world. Uh, Men and women still have consciences. The moral law is still there as a witness against them concerning their sin. Romans 1 and 2 makes this clear. The moral law of God remains and it was written on stone at Sinai in Ten Commandments in two tables. There it was clarified. There it was given in such an exact way. So, there is continuity between the moral law of God written on Adam's heart and the Ten Commandments that were given to Israel on Mount Sinai. Paragraph 3. Besides this law, commonly called moral... God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth diverse instructions of moral duties, all which ceremonial laws being appointed only to the time of Reformation. This is not a reference to the Protestant Reformation, but to the coming of Christ, in the fullness of time He came and did away with the old and brought in the new, are by Jesus Christ the true Messiah and only lawgiver who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. The the language is a little bit cumbersome here. It's old language. It's not familiar to us. But the point is this. There There were ceremonial laws given to the old covenant people of God having to do with worship. They prefigured Christ. When Christ came, they were fulfilled by Him, and thus taken away. They are not binding upon the new covenant people of God. Paragraph four. To them also, speaking of the people of Israel under the old Mosaic Covenant, he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So this is talking about the judicial or civil laws given to Old Covenant Israel. We are not we are not under them. We are not bound by them, but we are Notice the moral principles that undergird them, and we are to learn more about morality through the consideration of them. So then, there is the moral law. There are civil and ceremonial laws. The civil and ceremonial laws given to Israel under the old Mosaic Covenant have been taken away. Let's return to the moral law now, paragraph 5. The moral law doth forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, And that not only in regard to the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of God the Creator who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the Gospel in any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So, has the moral law of God been taken away with the New Covenant? Are we, under the New Covenant, uh, as God's people, not bound to God's moral law? We say, no, it, it remains. The moral law still remains. In fact, there is a sense in which... It's obligations are even stronger now. If we are in Christ Jesus, after all, we have been renewed by Him. This law, the moral law, has been written on our hearts by regeneration. So, the obligation on us to keep God's moral laws in some sense is stronger, not weaker. Paragraph 6, Although true believers be not under the law as a covenant of works. Did you hear it? Are we under the law as a covenant of works? No. To be thereby justified or condemned, yet... It is of great use to them as well as others, in that as a rule of life, informing them of the will of God and their duty, it directs and binds them to walk accordingly, discovering also the sinful pollutions of their natures, hearts, and lives, so as examining themselves thereby, they may come to further conviction of humiliation for and hatred against sin together with a clearer sight of the need they have of Christ and the perfection of his obedience it is likewise of use to the regenerate to restrain their corruptions and that it forbids sin and the threatenings of it serve to show what even their sins deserve and what afflictions in this life they may expect from them although expect for them rather although freed from the curse and unalloyed rigor thereof the promises of it likewise show them god's approbation of obedience of what blessings they may expect upon the performance thereof though not as due to them By the law as a covenant of works, so as man's doing good and refraining from evil. For the law encourageth to the one and deterreth from the other, is no evidence of his being under the law and not under grace. There's a lot there. I read it quickly and not even very well, uh, but you can go and read it for yourself. Uh, Later, the point is this, the moral law remains binding upon us. It is very useful for all people, especially Christians today. It restrains evil in the world. It convicts us of sin to show us our need for Christ. It also functions as a light to our feet, so that as God's people we might know clearly how we are to walk in this world. The moral law is still for us. We are not under the law as a covenant of of works, but under the covenant of grace the law still has its place for us in these ways mentioned. Paragraph 7. This is the last paragraph in this chapter. Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it. I love that phrase. These uses of the the, the law that we have just mentioned, that we have just read about in paragraph 6, they are not contrary to the gospel. They sweetly comply with the gospel. The Spirit of Christ subduing and and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requires to be done. The point is this, we've been regenerated and the Lord has freed us from bondage to sin. This law is written on our hearts by regeneration. Now we have this freedom in Christ to live in obedience to this moral law of God. The same law that was written on Adam's heart in the beginning, given to Israel in Ten Commandments. It is now written on our hearts through regeneration. There is so much that can be said about chapter 19 of our confession. I think it is a very beautiful and helpful statement. You, you can hear that I am talking so fast and it's because I'm wanting to put all this before you in a very brief uh, period of time. It's beautiful and helpful because it is true to the teaching of Holy Scripture. And I hope that you can see how it protects us from the errors of both legalism and antinomianism. It protects us from legalism, one, by stating in paragraph 6 that true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be thereby justified or condemned. So it protects us from that first and worst kind of legalism, that is the thought that we can be made right with God through law keeping. It clarifies that it is not possible. Two, it protects us from legalism by stating in paragraph three that we are not bound to keep the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And three, by stating in paragraph four that we are not bound to keep the civil or judicial laws either, for these have been been fulfilled and taken away by the coming of Christ and the arrival of the New Covenant." For protection against the legalistic error of elevating the traditions and opinions of men to the place of law, we would have to go to chapter 21 of our confession entitled, Of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. We do not have the time to do that, but that chapter is also very important. Are we obliged to obey God's law, His moral law? Well, yes, we are. Even under the covenant of grace, God's law has a place. Are we obliged to obey The traditions of men. No, we are free from that. We have liberty in Christ Jesus. We're made free in Christ Jesus to obey God's law, and we're freed from this obligation to obey the opinions and traditions of men. Chapter 19 of our confession helps to guard us against the air of antinomianism too, in its teaching that the moral law of God was written on man's heart in the beginning, on stone at Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and it is this law the moral law that is written upon our hearts by the regenerating power of the holy spirit you may see Jeremiah 31:33 and following the law of the spirit of life as it is called in Romans 8:2 and the law of Christ as it is called in Galatians 6:2 are not different from the moral law in substance but they are different from the 10 commandments as it pertains to it, to power for in Christ and by the spirit we are graciously enabled to keep God's moral law from the heart That is what the Second London Confession of Faith 19.7 teaches when it says, Neither are the aforementioned uses of the law contrary to the grace of the gospel, but do sweetly comply with it, the Spirit of Christ subduing and enabling the will of man to do that freely and cheerfully which the will of God revealed in the law requireth to be done. Isn't that beautiful? The law of the Spirit, the law of Christ, it's not something other than the Ten Commandments. It's that the Lord, by His Spirit, The Lord, through Christ, has enabled us, has made us alive and has enabled us and freed us to cheerfully do uh, that which God has commanded of us. Now, again, you may be wondering what all of this has to do with Baptist Catechism, questions 66 and 67. Well, again, I, I believe I have said enough about what the fourth commandment requires and forbids in previous sermons, the previous two. Here I wanted to take a moment to counter the criticism that we will certainly face from other Christians living in our place and time, as we strive by the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit to honor the Lord's Day Sabbath and to keep it holy. What will some charge us with? The answer, I think, is clear to you all. Some will say, you are legalists. You are legalists by saying that the Lord's Day Sabbath is to be honored. But is it legalistic to say that the Christian ought to obey God's Moral law. Is it legalistic to say that the Christian ought to obey God's moral law? Is it legalistic to say that the Christian ought to worship God in the way he has prescribed, honoring him one day in seven, honoring one day in seven as holy unto him until the end of the world? I say certainly not. Some who are anti Sabbatarians will say, well, The practice of Sabbath keeping belonged to the ceremonial laws of Old Covenant Israel and has been done away with. You are guilty of legalism for teaching that the Sabbath day is to be kept holy under the New Covenant. And our response to them, if this is their objection, should be, this is not true. The Sabbath command was not given first to Israel through Moses, but to Adam and when the Sabbath command was given to Israel through Moses, it was given a special place right at the heart of the Ten Commandments, wherein we find universal and unchanging laws. I wonder, are we charged with legalism when we say that God alone is to be worshipped? Are we charged with legalism that when we say that He is not to be worshipped with images? Are we charged with legalism if we say that God's name is to be revered? Are we charged with legalism when we say you shall honor your father and mother, do not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness or covet? Are we guilty of legalism when we teach that Christians are to keep these laws by uh, these laws of God from a heart renewed, by and empowered by the Holy Spirit? The answer is of course not. Then why do so many professing Christians in our day charge us with legalism when we teach that the fourth of these 10 commandments is to be kept too? I'm afraid that the antinomian error has had a devastating effect on the modern church. Some who are anti-Sabbatarians will respond by saying, but the command to keep the Sabbath day holy is not restated in the New Testament. Therefore, we are not bound to keep it. Have you ever heard this objection? Uh, It is not restated in the New Testament. Therefore, we are not bound to keep the fourth commandment. First of all, This also is simply not true. But let us assume for a moment that it was true. Let us assume for a moment that the fourth commandment was not restated in the New Testament. Would this mean that we are not bound to keep it? And I say, I think not. The question I would ask in reply to this is who invented this rule that in order for something to be believed or obeyed by the New Covenant people of God, it must be restated in the New Testament? Who made that rule? (laughs) The the, the Bible is ours in its entirety from Genesis to Revelation. There are things said in the Old Testament that are not restated in the New, that are certainly to be believed and even obeyed by us. Who made this rule up? This is a false assumption. In fact, the New Testament is not written as a fresh start. It is written as a continuation of and fulfillment of the Old. If something is to be done away with, you will need to demonstrate that it has been fulfilled or advanced somehow. The burden of proof is upon you. If something is being done away with, the burden of proof is upon those who wish to do away with it to demonstrate that uh, it has been somehow fulfilled or advanced by the coming of Christ and by His finished work. And as I said in the previous sermon, the thing of which the Sabbath is a sign, namely eternal rest in the presence of God, is not here yet in full. Christ has entered His rest. We rest in Him in part. We will rest eternally when He returns to make all things new. Until then, the practice of Sabbath-keeping remains for the people of God. This idea that something must be said in the New Testament for it to be believed or obeyed is a byproduct of the dispensational error, I think. As I said, this claim that the Sabbath is not taught in the New Testament is simply not true. Christ kept the Old Covenant Sabbath. He also stripped away all of the legalistic gunk that the religious leaders had piled on it, so as to demonstrate what true Sabbath-keeping looked like. After His resurrection, so we come now to the New Covenant era, after His resurrection, He met with His disciples on the first day of the week to break bread. The early church did the same as recorded in Acts. Assembling for Christian worship on the first day of the week is not merely the tradition of man. It is the law of God properly understood. It is the Christian New Covenant Lord's Day, Sabbath, if it is only the tradition of man, this practice of meeting on Sunday and weekly, if it is only the tradition of man, note this, there is nothing at all binding us to worship on Sunday as Christians. In fact, there is nothing binding us to weekly worship either. If this is merely the tradition of the church, then we are free as it were To worship on whatever day we want to worship and really whenever we want to worship. And for those who disregard the permanence of the Sabbath day, uh, it is no wonder then that so many of them are very careless in regards to their assembling together on the Lord's Day Sabbath. Some who are anti-Sabbatarians will respond by saying, Then why has the day changed? And we have been over this and so I will not uh, belabor the point. With you too much. The answer is because while the pattern of one day and seven is moral ever since the creation of the world, the day itself is symbolic or ceremonial. In the previous sermon, I described how the seventh-day Sabbath fit the covenant of works that God made with Adam in the garden, work will lead to rest. It was a reminder of the original creation, which had been has been ruined by sin. The first day Sabbath fits the covenant of grace instituted by Christ. Rest in Christ leads to work. And it is a reminder of the original creation as well as the new creation which Christ earned, inaugurated, and will consummate at his return. So the pattern of one day and seven was established at creation. It does not go away until Christ returns to make all things new and to bring us into his eternal rest. The day itself has a symbolic force to it, and we see that Christ rose on the first day of the week, met his disciples on the first day of the week. Also, we know uh, that the book of Hebrews does explicitly say that a Sabbath keeping remains for the people of God. Uh, It is Sunday, the Lord's Day Sabbath, now under the new covenant. The fourth commandment reminds us, uh, brothers and sisters, of what Christ has done and of the hope that we have in him for eternal Rest. So, the fourth commandment remains, brothers and sisters. The day has changed, but the moral obligation to devote a proportion of time to the public worship of God remains. The pattern established at creation, again, was one in seven. While this world remains, that pattern will remain. From Adam through Christ, the day was Saturday. From the resurrection of Christ to the end of the world, the day is Sunday. And this is why it is important for you to know that the fourth commandment forbids the omission of or careless performance of the duties required and the profaning that day by idleness or doing that which is itself sinful or by unnecessary thoughts, words, or works about worldly employments or recreations. Brothers and sisters, with all of that said, have you kept this law perfectly? No, we have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. Thanks be to God for the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus and for the gift of the Spirit who enables us to freely do all that pleases the Lord through regeneration and sanctification. Let's bow for a brief word of prayer, and then we will go to corporate prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us as a congregation to better understand the fourth commandment. If we are not convinced, I pray that you would make us to be convinced that the Sabbath remains. Uh, Help us to grow in our convictions regarding this. Also, help us in our Sabbath keeping, uh, that we would... Truly cease from common work and from common recreation to approach this day as holy unto you. Help us in our public worship. Help us also in our private worship as we go our separate ways that we would fix our minds upon you, O God, in a special way, that we would contemplate your word, that we would converse with one another, that we would give you glory. Of course, we are to give you glory each and every day. Help us in this too, O Lord, that we would glorify you in our work, in our eating, in our drinking, in all things. But Lord, help us especially on Sunday, the Lord's Day Sabbath, to exalt you as you have called us to do. We thank you for your forgiveness. Indeed, we confess to you that we are pretty bad at Sabbath keeping quite often. We thank you for this forgiveness, but we do pray for your further sanctification, uh, that you would purify our hearts and minds, O Lord, so that we would be found obedient to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.